And now uh, Tony Grotticelli is going to come uh, read our uh, small group. Uh, he's not going to read our small group. He's going to read our passage. <laughs> Tony is a small group leader for us. This is his first time ever reading scripture, and he wanted me to make sure y'all knew that. Thank uh, you guys so much. That, that's, yeah, so give him some grace, but don't screw it up, okay? <laughs> Just a beautiful human, isn't he? Just a yeah. beautiful human. All right, Colossians 1, 24 through 27, 2, 1 through 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches, a full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, and whom are all hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tony. Yeah. You, you only get an applause on your first one. Don't expect that ever again. Um, <clears throat> so if you are joining us uh, for the first time this morning or uh, visiting with us, uh, we have been in a fall series on the book of Colossians that we started just a few weeks ago. Um, this, this small, power-packed book was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul, the Apostle who was a church planner all throughout the uh, Mediterranean, all throughout the Roman Empire uh, in the first century, he uh, is in prison in Rome. He's literally shackled to another prison guard as he's awaiting trial in Rome. And he writes this letter to a group of believers that he's never met. Paul planted churches all over the Mediterranean. One of them was in a city called Ephesus, where the book of Ephesians is written to, and the church at Ephesus planted this church in Colossae nearby. But Paul never made it to Colossae. Paul never met these people, but he heard about their faith from his uh, friends and, and brothers in Ephesus. And so he's hearing about their faith. He's hearing about their, these new believers that are, that are joining the kingdom of Jesus. And he's saying, hey, I want to write something to that church to encourage them. I want to write something to that church to grow them, to grow them up, and to see them come to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, what he's done for them, and how it should affect their life. And so, uh, Paul, over and over again in this book, but in particular, our little section right here, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, Paul calls this gospel of Jesus a mystery, and we've said this kind of each week, but this mystery of the gospel is not something that you, like a mystery where a detective is trying to solve it and finding clues. It's a mystery that Paul means you're probably never going to fully understand this. It's mysterious in its depth. It's mysterious in its power. And you don't need to go on the journey of fully understanding it. You need to go on the journey of letting it fully capture you. And so this mystery that he's writing about, this little section we have, he actually says the word mystery three times. And so the mystery that Paul is revealing to them is what we're going to talk about this morning. And this uh, uh, culture that Paul is writing into in Colossae in the first century, mystery, that word mystery would have been kind of a buzzword, a, a cultural buzzword. 
There was this religion, there was this philosophy, there was this way of thinking that had kind of infiltrated the culture and infiltrated the church known as Gnosticism, which comes from the Greek word gnosis, which just means knowledge. And not, what Gnosticism believed was, I need to kind of separate my mind from my body, I need to kind of separate the metaphysical from the physical, and maybe even like self-harm myself to, to dismiss my body and its desires uh, and the pleasures of the body. I need to just focus on knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And there grew to be this kind of knowledge ladder that you could, you could climb, and the more knowledge and the more wisdom and the more understanding you got and the more you got rid of your own ignorance, the more you would kind of achieve salvation through knowledge, salvation through nirvana, salvation through understanding more and more. And so this mystery word was used in Gnosticism as, hey, you know if you work hard enough, there's enough knowledge to be gained, there's enough understanding to be gained to where you can remove all mystery. You can remove all the mysterious from your life. You can remove all, the, all that you don't understand, all the tension. Do you, want, do you want a pain-free life? Do you want a mystery-free life? Get more knowledge. Get more understanding. Get more wisdom, and you will remove all mystery. And Paul, almost kind of directly attacking the Gnostics and the Gnosticism that it made its way into the church, because when it made its way into the church, here's what they were saying. Man, Jesus is great. Man, that's awesome if you want to believe in Jesus. But you know if there's still things in your life that are mysterious that you don't understand, then you need to understand more. And then once you understand more, then all the mystery and the tension will go away. So this Gnostic Christianity was blending itself with the Christian faith. And Paul's saying, hey, 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 there are certain mysteries you will never understand. And especially in Christianity, it's not just that you'll never fully understand them. It's that you don't achieve your way to understanding in Christianity like you do in Gnosticism. In Christianity, truth is revealed to you, not discovered by you. In Christianity, the mystery is revealed to you. You don't go on the journey of climbing the ladder of understanding to where you understand it, and now there's nothing left to understand because you've achieved it. In Christianity, mystery and truth and beauty is revealed to you. You don't go on the journey of earning it and discovering it for yourself. So Paul's writing into that tension, and he keeps using this phrase, mystery, because he's saying, I want you to know there is going to be a lot of mystery in this. You will never fully understand all of this. And so in a nutshell, Paul uses seven words to sum up the mystery. And he's not trying to sum up the mystery so that he removes all mystery. He's trying to sum up the mystery so he can say, let me show you what has been revealed to you about this mysterious reality in Christianity. And so the mystery that Paul is revealing is at the end of verse 27. He says this, he says, this mystery hidden for ages, blah, 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 but now revealed to, his saint, revealed to his saints, blah, blah, blah. Sorry, I should probably not say blah, blah, blah about the word of God. But um, for our purposes this morning, it's kind of blah, blah, blah. So this mystery revealed to the saints, this mystery hidden for ages, but revealed to the saints. Now verse 27, at the end of that, this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you the hope of glory. That's the mystery that Paul is dancing around. And every thread on this passage is pulling itself from that central idea. This mystery now revealed to you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we're going to talk about three aspects of this mystery with the mystery of Christ in you. The first thing we're going to look at is the suffering or the pain, the suffering of Christ in you. And then we're going to look at the sweetness of Christ in you. 
And then we're going to look at the security of Christ in you, the suffering of Christ in you, the sweetness of Christ in you, and the security of Christ in you. And I worked really hard on that alliteration, so you should be impressed. So first, the suffering of Christ in you. If you grew up in the church, or you grew up around the church, our spirituality and Christianity, you've probably heard this reality about what Christians believe, that Christ lives in the believer, Christ in you. That's a very kind of uniquely Christian idea. But I think that reality gets lost on many of us because we move so fast. We go, yeah, yeah, Christ in me. But we go, if I were to ask you, what does that mean, that Christ lives in you? What does that mean, that Christ dwells in you? I think, speaking for myself, speaking for many of us, we would maybe be at a loss for words. But, you know, it, I, I don't really know. I don't, I don't really spend a whole lot of time thinking about that. It's just I asked Jesus into my heart, and now he's there, right? Isn't that kind of how this thing works? But I think... We can tend to hear that, even if you grew up with it as a familiar idea or you're, or you're familiar that it's a Christian idea. I think one of the things we believe about Christ in us, that Christ is living in us, is that we believe that that should mean, we believe and kind of demand that that should mean that our life will go a certain way and our life will feel a certain way. Like, I've got this life that I love living. I have this way that I love thinking about myself. I have uh, these functional realities that I want to be true about my life. I want my marriage to feel a certain way. I want my parenting to feel a certain way. I want my bank account to feel a certain way. I want my confidence to feel a certain way. And so if I'm not quite there, maybe Christ in me will make me feel all those things. Maybe Christ in me will kind of round out the life that I've already built for myself, and he'll be a great addition to what I've set out to do and to feel. And we think, much like the Gnostics in the first century who thought, man, if I just do more and achieve more and understand more and maybe even self-mutilate more, if I do more, I will climb the ladder of understanding and I'll arrive at nirvana. And in nirvana, which is not what they called it, but the same idea, that I can understand so much I'll remove all pain from my life. We tend to think that, too, about once Christ would dwell in me, I will only experience bliss, I will only experience happiness, and I will never have tension or mystery in my life. And so what we do, much like the Gnostics, is we make religion and spirituality all about us and our experience with it. I'm interested in Christianity as long as it makes me feel a certain way. But once it stops doing that, I don't know that I'm so interested in it anymore because so subtly we turn this idea of Christ in me and we make it about me. And what I should be feeling like if Christ is really in me. Doesn't Jesus want me to be happy? Doesn't Jesus not want me to suffer? Doesn't Jesus not want me to have this tension and this heartache? Religion should be about me and making me feel a certain way. And typically that way that we want to feel is void of pain and void of suffering. So we say, great, Paul, okay, awesome. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in me. When is the suffering going to stop? When is the restlessness going to stop? When is my spousal situation going to change? When is the way that I like to feel about my life going to start happening? And ever so subtly, we make religion, we make Christianity, the same thing the Gnostics made it, a way to serve me and my needs. And so I was trying to articulate a way to say this, a way to explain that what if, what if Christ in you, what if Christ in me wasn't about me? What if it was about him what if I wasn't the focal point of every line of Scripture? And what if the, the, the story and the narrative that Paul is telling is about Jesus and what he set out to do? And so kind of flipping the, the, the focus on its head, I was trying to articulate a way to, uh, to say this and explain this, and then I remembered C.S. Lewis has already done that. So it's better than what I could give you. So I'm going to read to you C.S. Lewis. Um, but I don't know if this quote got corrected. Is, are we good? Do we have a quote up there? If not, you're just going to have to trust me that C.S. Lewis said this. 
in mere Christianity. Is it up there? Yep. Imagine for yourself as a living, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that it hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. What if the idea that Christ in me was about what he set his affection on, what he set his mission on, and he's not coming to round out my life and make my life feel a certain way. He's coming to make my life and my soul a place for a king to dwell in. And he's got way different intentions for my life than maybe I had for my life. And him rearranging the house and tearing out walls and building new towers is because a king is coming to dwell there. And he will make it fit for a king. And his idea of my life and my idea of my life might be at odds. And I promise you, he will win that battle when he comes to dwell inside of you. And so on some levels, this declaration of Paul, this mystery now revealed that Christ in us, will cause an immense amount of suffering and pain for the believer. And here's why. Because you and Jesus have different ideas for what your life should be. And if that's not true, then you're worshiping an image of your own imagination. You're not worshiping the real Jesus. Because when Jesus comes to dwell, he will destroy your pride because he loves you. When Jesus comes to dwell, he will destroy your idols because he loves you. He will destroy the ideas you love having about yourself. Because the preeminent one will make his palace in me, it must be fit for a king. And the rearranging of the house, the rearranging of my heart will be painful. It will cause suffering. And not only does the rearranging of my house, like he's tearing out walls, he's tearing down idols, he, he, he's not only doing the painful work of the reconstruction, the destruction, and the renewal, he's not, that's painful. He's also requiring, when he comes to dwell in me, one of the things that you can almost take to the bank for any believer, this mystery of Christ in me, not only will it cause suffering, it will require that I develop a new theology of suffering. It will always call me deeper and deeper into a new theology, a new understanding of suffering. And all of us have really bad theologies of suffering. We all have bad tapes, bad narratives about suffering. That's why we try to avoid it so much. Because, see, suffering always tells me. And I don't care what kind of suffering it is. I don't care if it's something that, that, that you deem justifiable pain or not. I don't, I don't know how much suffering comparison you, you do. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But any kind of suffering always tells me that I'm poor. And I don't just mean monetarily poor. Suffering always tells me I don't have what it takes to face this pain. Suffering always tells me I don't have the resources necessary to walk by faith into the next season. Suffering always tells me I don't have enough, I am not enough, and I will never be enough. Suffering always tells me I'm poor. So of course I try to avoid it. No one likes feeling poor. No one likes feeling inadequate. No one likes feeling they don't have what they need to face what they're facing. But Paul flips all this on its head in this revelation of the mystery, listen to what he says in verse 24, the opening verse of this section. 
He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings. Did you hear what Paul just said? If you heard what Paul just said, you should be angry with him. You would not want to get coffee with Paul. (laughs) Here's what he's saying. Think about the storyline in your life. Think about whatever it is that's going on in your life that you're working really hard right now to try to avoid dealing with or to end the bleeding of. Think about whatever storyline in your life that you are exhausted from. Think about whatever storyline that you wake up thinking about and you go to bed thinking about. Think about whatever piece of your life that you are so tired of dealing with. Paul, over coffee, among other things, would look at you and he would ask you this direct question. Are you rejoicing in that? (laughs) You you kind of want to go, who are you, Paul? I'll, I'll need this. I'm leaving Portland Brew. I'm going to Frothy because Paul would definitely be at Portland, not at Frothy. (laughs) I don't need to get coffee with you. I don't need you to ask me if I'm rejoicing in my suffering. But please hear what Paul is saying and don't hear what he's not saying. He's not saying to rejoice about the suffering. He's not saying to rejoice that you are suffering. Paul here is saying that part of understanding this mystery, part of having this mystery revealed to you, is learning to rejoice in suffering while you are suffering because, and Paul knows this, and this is one of the threads that's all throughout this little section that that we're studying this morning, because Paul knows, and by the way, Paul is currently suffering while he's writing this letter. So he's not speaking from some mountaintop. He's going, look, I know this, that only in suffering Will the believer in Jesus be able to draw from and sit with and pull out of the treasure of Christ in us? Because whenever I suffer, it will force me, it will force me to loosen my death grip on whatever functional savior I've thought would save me, would deliver me, would give me the life that I want. And suffering rips that apart and says, that won't be able to be stood on for much longer. So in love, sometimes the Lord will loosen our death grip on our idols so that we will see in our suffering that we have access to a treasure of pulling from the reality and the mystery of Christ in us. Suffering will always make me find a new resource to save me. It will rip away the things that I've thought would save me. Like I thought what would save me is how I like to view myself as a dad. So what happens when I begin to see that my dealings as a dad, I'm failing at? And in that suffering, it's hard, and there's shame, and there's sorrow, and there's heartache, and I'm causing pain, I'm I'm causing scars in my kids' lives, and that's real suffering. But also what's happening in that suffering is the Lord going, yeah, and you thought that your view of yourself as a dad would save you, and it can't. So now what's going to save you? And what's going to save your kids? You or Christ in you? See, in Christianity, this, that's, just, that's just a little breadcrumb of what Paul's saying. It's beginning to understand the mystery. It's beginning to, to, to lead us into the joy and the treasure and the riches of Christ in us because it forces us to draw from the treasure of Christ in us. That's what suffering does. So what are the treasures and the riches of Christ in us? And this is our second point. What is the sweetness of Christ in us? He says, he says riches and treasure multiple times in this passage. Verse 27, chapter 2, verse 2, he's saying, I want you to grow in your understanding and your knowledge of the treasure and the riches that are in Christ, and Christ is in you. So what are the treasures and the riches? What is the sweetness of Christ in us? 
Well, in the modern day, we're, again, we're all victims of this and we're all participants in this at the same time. In the modern day, we, we've almost unknowingly cut ourselves off from any need, truly, for a divine, transcendent being. And no one maybe is articulating that or saying that, but here's what's begun to happen. We've now pulled the transcendent so down into the temporal and the present where everything is divine. Nature's divine, and self-discovery is divine, and meditation is divine, and my life is divine. And really what ends up happening is I build this little wall around my life, and all the needs I have for interactions with the transcendent, I can find in me and in my little world. That's great if you, if you believe in a transcendent God. That's great if you believe in the God of the Bible. But I've just kind of found my God like right here in me. And I've looked inward. We call that navel gazing. Like I'm just staring at me. And I'm finding all that I need. I'm finding all of the power. I'm finding all of the meaning. I'm finding all of the divinity I need in me. And so when everything is divine, nothing is truly or entirely other or above the cosmos for our modern day. And so it may be lost on us a little bit in a post-millennial culture, the radical nature of what Paul just said. Paul just said that Christ is in you. And to anybody who's reading this, please understand what they just read. We talked about it last week, that Paul gives a description of that Christ, of that Jesus. Do you know what he says? That Christ is the image of the invisible God. He created all things, and all things were created for him, and all things were made by him, and he holds all things together, and nothing was made that was not made by him, and he is before all things, and he sits above creation, and he is very God of very God. That Christ dwells in you. For any believer of any deity in the ancient world, it would have never occurred to them that such a condescension from the divine would even be possible or even thought of on the part of the deity. Like no Roman or Greek mythological god ever descended for the purpose of dwelling inside of the human subjects. They always descended, or when they would descend, it was always for them to take from humanity, for them to annihilate humanity, for them to punish humanity. If a deity is descending, we're in trouble. But Paul here says, no, 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 the, the real god, the one who made all those gods, he descended for an entirely different reason. He descended so that he would dwell in you. And as kindly as the Bible can put it, as kindly as Paul can put it, he's trying to tell the church, there's nothing about you. Please hear this very clearly. There's nothing about you that made you desirable to dwell within. There's nothing about you that tempted or wooed Jesus to want to come and dwell inside of you. He knew the cost. He knew the darkness. He knew the lowly, humble nature he would have to take on. And his intent to dwell in the church was not to annihilate the church. His intent to dwell in the church meant that he knew he would be annihilated on behalf of the church in order to do so. So please hear this from Paul. Please hear this from the Bible. Please hear this from me. Jesus Christ did not descend to pay you back for what you've done. Jesus Christ descended to buy you back from what you've done so that he could put his spirit inside of you. Jesus did not come to pay you back for what you've done. He descended that he might buy you back. The word there is redeem. Buy you back from what you've done that he might put his spirit inside of you. Charles Spurgeon said, I am sure that my Lord Jesus Christ never stops at my door to get anything from me. Whenever Jesus comes to my door, he brings countless blessings 
with him. It cannot be that he took our nature unless it, with the, unless it was with the highest designs of love. I'm sure that my Lord Jesus never stops at my door to get anything from me. Whenever Jesus comes to my door, he brings countless blessings with him for me. Jesus descended that he might give himself to you. This is the sweetness. This is the treasure of the mystery of Christ in you. This is the revelation. This is the glorious mystery that you will never fully understand or suss out. That Jesus descended because he wanted to be with you. And he wanted you to take from him. Take from me. Take from me. Take from me. And he bought you for himself that he might be with you and be inside of you in the most mysterious and intimate of ways. And he would, do, he would get closer to you than a brother, that he would literally put his spirit inside of you. He can't get any closer than that. And when he comes to dwell, he doesn't come to take. He comes to give and he says, what do you need? All the riches of my treasure are yours because I'm dwelling inside of you. You have access to that. And suffering will force us to take from the resource of Jesus himself. We are called to borrow from his riches. We are called to lean on his strength. We are called to trust in his providence, to rest on his chest, to cry in his arms. And the mystery revealed to the church is over against Gnosticism, that you have to climb your way up to earn something, to gain something, to understand something. The mystery of the of the gospel revealed to the church is this, you already have all the treasures you need. That Gnosticism would say, hey, go climb the knowledge of understanding ladder and go get more and get more and get more and earn more and earn more and prove more and prove more and, and separate yourself so that you finally have what you need one day. Christianity says you already have all the treasures of Jesus. And where do you have access to those? Well, he's as close to you as he can possibly get. He's dwelling inside of you if you belong to him. Look what he says in verses, chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. He says, I'm writing this to you, church, to reach, that you would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here's what he's saying. I'm writing to you that you would, you would have more wisdom and understanding and knowledge, much like the Gnostics would tell you but it's totally different because I'm telling you all the riches of knowledge and wisdom and understanding are already yours because they're in Christ. And where's Christ? He's in you. This is the mystery of Christianity. The treasure is already yours. This is the sweetness of Christ in you. The treasure is already yours. Do you know that if Christ is in you, you're never alone? See, here's one of the things that suffering always tells me. Suffering screams at me that I'm alone. Suffering tells me that I'm the only one that gets my pain and no one could ever get it. Suffering tells me that I'm the only one who's walked where I'm walking and no one could ever empathize or sympathize with me. Uh, we, we talk about this, we've talked about this before, we all love to play the suffering Olympics and we all think we're gold medalists. That, that I've suffered more than you and so we start doing this awful thing which is comparing our suffering like, I, I, I haven't suffered as much as you, so I don't get to feel as sad as I feel right now. Or you haven't suffered as much as me, so you don't get to feel as sad as you're feeling right now. And so what we do in our suffering, it tells us that we're all alone, and then we love to prove that we are that alone. And so we love telling people how much we've suffered so that they know that they wouldn't really actually get our suffering. And so we, we further the isolation. We, we make the isolation become more real than it actually is. 
Suffering tells me that I will always be this alone. And then I join with it in that chorus. And I believe that I will always be alone. But if Christ is in me, there's never a time where I've been abandoned or forsaken. There's never a time where my pain has gone misunderstood by Jesus. There's never a time where the Bible says in the book of Psalms that he is not catching all of my tears in his jar that has my name on it. There's never a time where I'm weeping alone in my room. That's not real anymore. If Christ is in me, I've never been abandoned or forsaken. There's never a time where Jesus is not offering himself to be taken from by me. There's never a time with his spirit inside of me that I don't have access to the resources I need to face the darkness I'm facing. How do I know that's true? Because in Christ are all the riches of the treasure of wisdom and understanding, and Christ is in me. So let me make this like really practical. This, this was my week. You ever walk into a meeting that you're afraid of? You got a meeting with a boss or a, a friend, or you got a, a hard meeting, you got a meeting with a spouse that you're afraid of and you're feeling really insecure about? When you walk into that meeting, are you poor or are you rich? Do you have what you need to be there and to be present there and to not be afraid of what you're facing? You ever get in a fight with a friend or a wife or a husband and believe, I don't have what I need to be here right now? So when you're in a conflict, are you lacking or do you have what you need? Or how about this one? When you lay on your pillow at night and you're recounting your day, or what I love to believe when you're laying on your pillow and you're recounting my day, uh, do, you, do, you, do you ever think back over your day, man, I'm so inadequate for what I've been called to do? Or do you have access to the riches of Jesus and how you feel inadequate isn't as real as the treasures that are found in Christ and Christ is in you? Or how about this? When you wake up and you're about to face your day, you ever feel needy? I don't have the strength to do what I know I have to do today. Whether that's just go to a job that you hate or that's raising kids, or that's enter into the pain of a relationship, or that's whatever it is, the taunting that you face each day, do you have what you need to face that, or are you lacking? Are you rich or are you poor? Because suffering would love to tell you that you're poor, but Christ in you says you have access to all the riches of the treasures of Jesus. Do you know the sweetness of having the, treasure, the resources of Jesus inside of you? So while there is a mystery to this Christ in us, there, we, we have seen, and Paul is making very clear, that Christ in you means there will be suffering, but Christ in you also means there will be sweetness. But Paul says one other thing about this mystery revealed of Christ in us. He adds this additional description, and it's the security of Christ in us. Look again at how he closes verse 27 in chapter 1. He says, this mystery revealed, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you know that when you're suffering, the suffering that you're going through almost takes on a life of its own and it begins to speak to you? And the suffering always makes promises. Our suffering is always promising us things. It's promising us that the reason why we're suffering is our fault. It's promising us that we deserve this suffering. It's promising us that the way you feel about the suffering in that very moment will be the way you feel about it always and that nothing's going to change. Suffering is making promises. And this poisonous promise 
and the poisonous promises that the, that the suffering makes to me, I begin to join in that, and then I start making promises back. So subtly, even subconsciously, we don't even realize this. Do you know that when you're in pain, you start making vows, even if you don't realize it? And here's the vows we tend to make back to the suffering. We tend to promise to ourselves and to our world, I'll never feel this way again. I'll never let myself get hurt this way again. I'll never open myself up this way again because I refuse to be in this much pain ever again. And then the suffering starts telling us that it's our fault and that we deserve it, and so we start making these promises. Well, then I'll get my act together. I'll do this better always so that I never feel this way again. We promise that we will do better. We promise, we vow internally and even sometimes externally that we will never let our hearts feel that way again. So suffering is promising something to us and then we make promises back and Paul here wants to introduce a third voice to the conversation. He says, Christ in you is the hope of glory, meaning, do you know in your suffering Jesus is making promises too? But Paul is saying that in the indwelling Jesus inside of you, there is a hope of something. There is a promise of something. And suffering might be making promises to you. Suffering might be making some guarantees to you. And you might be making some vows back. But Jesus would love a seat at the table that you would listen to what he has to say. Because he's making promises too. He's making some guarantees too. And here's what Paul says. Christ in you is the hope, the promise, the guarantee, the security of glory. What's glory? Went on a little journey this week, theologically. Theological journeys are great and boring. That's not true. I really enjoy them. That's why I do this job. But it was a, it was a, it was a fool's errand to go on this theological journey. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, glory. What's glory? Well, that should be easy. Uh, and so I, I just kind of pulled up on my Bible program all the places that the word glory is mentioned in the Bible, which is several thousand. And so we're going to spend the next five days straight talking through each of those passages. But here's, here's what's complex about this idea, this Christian idea of glory, is that it, it, it can be kind of a description of something, like the glorious nature of God. It can also be like a noun, like God's glory, this thing that, that, that he establishes and that he fights for and that the church joins in with, the glory of God, the earth is full of his glory. We sang it in our first song, we're born to sing the glory of his name. But then also, this idea of glory is not just this adjective, this description, and this noun. It's also a state of being. It's also a place. It's like a location, like a, like a physical place. And generally speaking, whenever the, the Bible is talking about the people of God and glory, it's talking about that, that last option, this, this state or this place, this location, the state of glory. And so if you kind of pull in, as, as best as I could, uh, if you kind of can pull in all the different aspects of this biblical idea of glory, and then you apply that to when, he, when, when, the, when the Bible is talking about the church and glory, Here, here's, a, here's a helpful summary. Glory is the splendor of abundant rest. Glory is the splendor of abundant rest. Rest. Genesis to Revelation, that's the best mini description I could come up with. I'm not pretending that that describes every aspect of glory, but for our purposes this morning, glory is certainly not less than the splendor of abundant rest. So in that, with that definition, 
Do you think we long for glory? Do you think you long for glory? The splendor of abundant rest. The story goes that when an emperor of Rome would return from a conquest, would return from a victory, he would enter back on the streets of Rome and it had already been uh, you know, announced that the victory had been won and so he would have these trumpeteers and the parade would be going and the celebration of victory. And all these people would be, you know, partying and celebrating and drinking and eating that, that the, the king is back. The emperor is returned and he won this victory for us. He won this battle for us. And, it's, and, 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 he, and he achieved peace for the kingdom, for the empire. And so the emperor, you can imagine, on his chariot riding in, basking in this moment of newfound power and newfound rest and newfound glory. But on his chariot, many emperors would have with them a slave that would be whispering in their ear, Sic transit gloria mundi. And you all know exactly what that means. <laughs> all glory is fleeting. All glory is fleeting. Can you imagine now, look, go to that picture in your mind of an emperor riding on the chariots and the glory that's literally happening right there, the rest that's been achieved because he just won a battle and he's having someone whisper in his ear, all this is fleeting, all this is fleeting. And he intentionally did that. Because all this victory, all this fame, all this power, all this glory, emperor, won't last forever. You don't own it. You're just renting it for now. This is temporary glory. The splendor of this victory, the splendor, emperor, of the soul rest that you just achieved for yourself in the kingdom, all of that you're experiencing, the glory right now, it'll all be gone tomorrow. It won't last because there will be a new enemy tomorrow and you won't be able to rest permanently. The splendor of abundant rest is yours right now, but it'll be gone tomorrow. All glory is fleeting. I would wager with you that we're all groaning, we're all pining and laboring for the permanent experience of the splendor of abundant rest. It's why we pursue dreams, it's why we move to Nashville, it's why we go on dates, it's why we go to concerts, it's why we have sex, it's why we get married, it's why we have kids, it's why we make money, it's why we go on vacations. It's probably why you came to church. The splendor of abundant rest is what our hearts are groaning for. But sin makes it impossible to fully enter into now. The splendor of abundant rest is this, it's this mist out there. It's, it's like trying to grab water as it's coming out of a faucet. Like you get little, little taste of it, little, little drops of it, but you can't hold it. It always finds its way through, and it's not permanent. It doesn't stick. It doesn't stay. This splendor of abundant rest is fleeting. All glory is fleeting. But biblically, when the believer in Jesus is told about the hope of glory, it never tells the believer, hey, you can get all of the splendor of abundant rest right now. You can, all, you can have it if you would just do better. You can have it all now if you would just do more, if you would just be more spiritual, if you just obey more. It never says that. Always, biblically speaking, when the believer in Jesus is told about the glory that can be theirs, it's always out in the future. It's always tied to the return of Jesus. That one day, you and I will experience the splendor of abundant rest, and it will never be taken from us because we will be with Jesus. 
what we know in part now, having his spirit inside of us now, what we know just like a mist now, what we know through a glass dimly now, one day we will know fully. One day our hearts won't just have faith in it and hope in it. One day our faith will turn to sight and we will know it. And one day our bodies won't just groan for it. Our bodies will know it. You will have a redeemed and resurrected body that will be fully at rest. And you and I will know the glory you and I will know the splendor of abundant rest, of having all of our tears wiped away, of having all the sadness go away, of having all the sorrow and sickness and pain and death go away, and you and I will permanently be fixed in a state of the splendor of abundant rest. But not yet. But Paul says one day that because of Christ in you, you have the confirmation, you have the security of hope for that day. Because Christ is in you, that day is coming for you. So what's Paul's connection there? Why does Christ in the church guarantee the church to enter glory one day? It's because, and this, this is mysterious, so I'm not pretending to explain away all the mystery, but let me show you Paul's logic. Let me show, the, show you the biblical logic. Christ Jesus has so tied himself to you, so bound himself up with the church, Christ has now tied his glory up with yours. You bear his name. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, and he has bound himself to you, so much so that your fate is now his fate, and vice versa. Christ in you means you in glory. So a bad example of this, and I don't mean bad example like this doesn't really work, I mean like unhealthy example of this, is um, when college football fans use the, the, the plural pronoun we, like we lost yesterday, um, you didn't do anything. <laughs> but it's this idea that like we've tied ourselves unhealthily to like their fate now is my fate, and if, you know, Alabama wins and cheats again, like I'm a winner and I'm a cheater, you know, like that kind of thing. I'm kidding. Um, but it's this idea that I've tied myself now to this other entity and what happens to them happens to me. That's the unhealthy version and the comical, hopefully, version. Here, here's a healthy version, and I mean this in the least codependent way possible. This is what happens in marriage. We're now, and again, non-codependently, I'm still my own person, and my wife is still her own person. But mysteriously, somehow, if she's not okay, I'm not okay. And if I'm not okay, she's not okay. And when I have victory, she has victory. And when she's celebrating, I'm celebrating. And when she's laughing, I'm laughing. And it's this mysterious two becoming one. And there's this idea that what we're so bound together, what happens to her will happen to me. And what happens to me will happen to her because we're one. You can't separate the two. That's what Paul, that's what the Bible, that's what is happening here with Christ in us, what happens to Jesus will happen to you. And what happens to you will not happen to Jesus. You cannot separate the two. And so, here's the logic. Because Christ in bodily form is in glory right now, he is in a state in the splendor of abundant rest, but he's put his spirit inside of you, guess what? Those two things will be united one day. And so because Christ will stay and remain in glory, he will bring his body into glory, which is you. He has you in the palm of his hands. 
It's so inextricably, you are so inextricably tied to Jesus with the spirit of him living inside of you that now he now so, has such a grip on you that if he were to lose you, it would be really bad for you. If he were to loosen his grip on you, it'd be worse for him. That's how tied up with you he is. That his glory is at stake. His fame and honor is at stake. He will not lose one of those whom the Father has given him because he's tied himself to you. You bear his name now. Do you know how committed he is to his body? Do you know how committed Jesus is to himself? And in, in, in the least, most, most self-forgetful way, him being so committed to himself means he's eternally committed to you because you now bear his name. He now lives inside of you. Your secure hope is wrapped up in his commitment to you. It's not wrapped up in your commitment to him. Your secure hope is wrapped up in the promise he has made to you, not the promises you've made to him. And his promises to you can be trusted because he has put his spirit inside of you. This is the mystery revealed now. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we are um, bound to you, and you're in glory, and so we're bound for glory. But we just, we only get little drops of it here, and we only get little snippets of it here in these thin places. And we gather each Sunday to enter into just a taste, just a, an appetizer of the rest that's coming. So on this Sabbath, as we bask in you, Jesus, would you lead us deeper, farther up and farther in to the splendor of abundant rest that awaits us. May we begin to draw from that treasure chest now, knowing that one day we will be in glory with you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.